0: trust and obey. It's true, isn't it? There's no other way that we can be happy in Jesus. Because Jesus is not only Savior, he is, he's Lord. Lord means boss. Lord means master. Lord means yes, sir. (laughs) Yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do. And that's it. Because he loves us, and he's given us his ways so that we may be happy in him, but also may glorify him as well. So let's go to him now and ask God that he would help us understand his word, to trust him more and to obey. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your love for us. We want to thank you so much that you indeed are our father through faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that is inspired from beginning to end. We thank you, Lord, that is forever settled in heaven And now I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, as we wait upon you, that you will open our minds, that you open our hearts, that you will help us to understand just how magnificent your blessings are. Lord, give us a a refreshment. Give us a, a true understanding about how good you are and how good you are to us. And we give you thanks. We give you praise for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one day a government official on a shiny government vehicle had to pay a visit to a family way back in the mountains. As they say, so far back they had to pump the sunshine in. The official, dressed in his nicely tailored suit with brand new shoes, noticed nothing but dirt in what could be considered a yard, I guess. The house was a shack complete with holes in the floorboards at the on the on the porch. The outhouse was off to the right side of the building. But the official noticed something else as he walked to the door, or should I say someone else. A girl, Caroline, about 10 years old. She had on a tattered dress, and she wore no shoes, and her hair was sort of matted. Caroline came right up to the official and, with a bright smile but missing a couple of teeth, said, hi. The official asked Caroline if the Smith family lived there. And she said, yes, we've been living here all our lives. I've lived here all my life. Well, the official who never wanted for anything in his life began to feel sorry for this family. He just couldn't help it. He said to Caroline, you know, it must be terrible to be so poor. And Caroline said, mister, we ain't poor. We just don't got no money. (laughs) Well, it looked like this little girl was blessed in so many other ways besides just money and trinkets. Well, today we dive a little bit deeper into the blessings and the curses part of the treaty that Yahweh, the divine suzerain, wants to make with his vassals, with his people, Israel. If you were here last week, you remember that we took a little trip without leaving the building. We imagine we were part of God's people, over a million strong, having a mountaintop experience on Mount Gerizim, at Mount Ebal. The Lord, through Moses, wanted them to stand on these peaks overlooking a major road in that area and shouting out amen to the blessings and the curses regarding the Torah. And odd though it was, the only things the Levites were to declare in chapter 27 of Deuteronomy were curses. And after proclaiming a curse, all the people were to say amen, right? Remember this. Now, some of those curses, remember those? relations. With animals, relations with mothers-in-law, not moving a neighbor's landmark. Now, I'm not sure if we were here last week. I don't know if any of us would have ever amended to anything like that in our lives before. And maybe never again, I don't know. But today we get to turn the corner and talk about Yahweh pouring out his material blessings upon his people whenever they were to actually settle in the land. But you know, the scene seems to have changed between Deuteronomy 27 and our passage for today. You know, it's almost as if the Lord invites his people to stand in another place to experience his blessings. Now, I can imagine standing on, instead of Mount uh, Gerizim and Mount Ebal, I can see now God's people standing in front of a tsunami of blessings held back only by a huge floodgate. In our passage for today, Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. And so if you don't have your Bible open there, please open it up to 28 14, 1 to 14. We're going to see the Lord give a promise to his people. I will pour out blessing after blessing on top of blessing on your lives. But we will see that his floodgate of blessings has a lock on it. Yahweh's promise for blessing carries with it a condition. And the condition is obedience. That's the key. It's the key. We talked about it. We sang this song earlier. Trust and obey. It's obedience. See, I find it interesting that Moses used six separate descriptions in these verses describing Israel's need to obey the Lord. But today I want us to consider two things. First, to marvel at the magnitude of the Lord's blessings to his people. And to do that, we want to simply just read through these verses. This list really does speak for itself. The second consideration, though, we're going to spend a lot of time on this today, is to ask and to answer a why question, or at least attempt to. Why did God promise to heap blessings upon his people in this part of chapter 28? Now, hasn't he already made many promises to his people? Isn't a covenant relationship where Yahweh pledged to protect and provide for his people, along with a big chunk of land, enough? Doesn't the Lord know human nature? See, as we stroll through this passage, we won't merely see individual onesie-twosie type blessings. No, we will see the Lord promise to pour out entire categories of blessings on his people. He said these blessings will take them and overtake them as. They obey him. But given what we know about ourselves, and certainly the Lord knows how dangerous it is and how it can be when flawed humans have an overabundance of material possessions and blessings. Is that right? When a person, a family, or a nation has so many material goods that they're swimming in them, what can happen to a person's heart? What can happen to our hearts? I find it instructive, though, that yes, indeed, the Lord does know human nature. And he does tell us about this. See, later on in Deuteronomy, Yahweh even predicts that his people will become, as we often put it, spoiled. Moses describes how Israel is going to react to the Lord precisely because of his abundant blessings. He tells us in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, but Jezrin, another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock salvation. Since Yahweh knows what's going to happen to his spoiled people that he will so abundantly bless, and that begs the question, doesn't it? Why abundantly bless his people? It's a puzzlement, isn't it? And to make matters even more interesting, in the days of his ministry, the Lord Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, warns about the lure of material prosperity. You cannot serve God in mammon. Isn't that what he said? One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Unless we forget as well, Jesus himself was homeless. He was so financially poor that he had to borrow a coin to illustrate a sermon. Now, certainly, He and his disciples had a common money bag that Judas sometimes kind of dipped into from time to time. But Jesus didn't have anything he could claim to to call his own, except one thing, that was a seamless tunic that was ripped off his body when he was crucified. So why the prosperity emphasis in this passage? And why does there seem to be such a drastic shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding riches? I'm convinced there's a twofold reason for this change. And first reason is that we often miss when we encounter this passage. We so often miss the reality of the unseen world in Moses' day. The second is the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Those are the two reasons, I believe, of the difference in emphasis. And we're going to cover this twofold reason in a bit. But before we do, as I mentioned, I'd like for us to simply read through these verses to take in the sheer magnitude and the scope of the blessings just waiting for the people of Yahweh. All they had to do was obey him. And like the song says, blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. So let's read Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of the herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you in one way and flee before you in seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall only go up and not down, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. Amazing. Isn't it super abundant blessings, ultimate influence in the world, military superiority, so much material stuff that Israel will bless the world as economic leaders in selling their surplus to the nations. If only Israel would obey the Lord. Now, as we took a look at these verses, We saw how much the Lord promised to give to his people. So now let's begin to explore an answer to the question. Why did the Lord place such an emphasis on material blessings in this passage? It has to do with the reality of the unseen world in Moses' day. Because there is far more here than meets the eye. In these verses that we just read, where is the focus? It's naturally on the blessings the Lord promised to give Israel. But if the blessings are the focus, I see two huge problems here. Maybe you do as well. The first is a trap that the prosperity gospel people fall into all the time. Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard the claim and the notion that God has made his people the head and not the tail. Maybe you've heard that before. After all, we're the king's kids. God wants to give us the best of everything. And from here, it's just a short step to the teaching that it's not God's will that his kids, his children, his people to be impoverished. But how many of God's people, his choice servants today are suffering poverty and all the way down through the ages? I think of our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. Rikina Fossa we're praying for. As well, we need to keep in mind our brothers and sisters in North Korea. Winter's coming. Oftentimes they're reduced to eating grass. And how much worse? These are just the citizens. How much worse are they, the brothers and sisters reduced to eating whatever because they're Christians? See, eternal truth, though, is truth regardless of the culture or era, or circumstance. See, if God is communicating in this passage that it's not his will that his people would be impoverished, then we have to conclude that many of God's choice servants around the world are not walking with him. That there is somehow sin blocking the way to his blessings. And I, for one, will never say that. How about you? Now, there's another problem with the idea if if the focus of this passage is the blessing that God gives his people. What did God say in this passage is the key to unlock His blessings? It's obedience. See, we reason that if, if, as God's people, if we obey Him, then God will bless us, as in He's obligated to do so. But what happens when we are faithful obeying the Lord and He blesses us with hardship, with problems, pain and suffering over the long haul? How many of us have experienced this? We wake up in the morning with a desire to serve the Lord. Our hearts are just full of the Lord, and we jump out of bed, and then we grab our Bible, the first thing we do. And we're so hungry to to read God's Word. And then we pray. We pray even more than what we normally pray. We're just full of the Lord. And so we get up off our knees and come out of our chair, ready to take on the day. And then it happens, right? You know where I'm going with this. One bad, inconvenient circumstance after another. Can I get a witness on this? How many times that happened to you? I know it's happened to me in more times than I can count. Why did these circumstances happen to me? I do what the Lord wanted me to do. Isn't he supposed to bless me when I do right? If we're not very careful, in the midst of these inconvenient and bad and, and, and painful times, We can be tempted with this. Lord, I did what you ask of me. And now finish the thought, if you dare. So I think you owe me something, Lord. Now, of course, we're all good Christian folks here. We would never say that, would we? But if we were perfectly honest, would that thought at least split across our minds? especially if the circumstances become unbearable over the long haul. Well, I can go on, but you get the point, don't you? As followers of the Lord Jesus, we are well aware that God owes us nothing, does he? We owe him everything. And though he blesses us, we cannot demand of him that he do so. So when it comes to our passage today, could it be that our focus needs not to be so much on the blessing that God gives, but on the giver of the blessing, God himself. And this is as it should be. See, we know something, don't we? If we're careful Bible readers, that every passage of scripture has one person front and center in it. And who is that? That's God, right? God is the hero of every story. He's a subject of every teaching. And so, as we place the emphasis in this passage on the Lord rather than his blessings, we can simply say, Hey, you know, God, he is good and he's faithful because he gives his people good stuff. He gives people great blessings. But let's look at this a bit more closely. See, there's more here and a more profound point I see in this passage. You see, as we know, or we may not know, whenever we seek to understand the scripture, we need to understand and ask the question, what did it mean? Not what does it mean, but what did it mean? As in, what did it mean to those who first heard? See, once we understand what it meant, we can more accurately apply the scripture to our lives. It may sound a bit unfamiliar, but let me give you a brief explanation to let you know why I believe this to be true. See, because after all, part of our mission statement is that we learn the Bible. God has given us eternal truth in his word. Can we agree on that? But the eternal truth between the covers of our Bibles were written at a certain time, in a certain place, certain language, and so much more. And none of it pertains directly to our day in our contemporary circumstances. Because I don't know when the last time I saw something about the internet in my Bible. What about you? Or space telescopes giving us pictures of galaxies up close and personal, declaring the glory of God. See anything about telescopes in here? For reasons known to him, God chose to reveal eternal truth to the scripture writers thousands of years ago, to and about Israel in their culture, according to their worldview and their languages. See, all these things, though, are far different from our present circumstances. Does that make sense? So let me point something out, though, that we so often miss, that when we read and study the Bible, it is the worldview of the people that were involved. In our passage for today, this includes the spiritual understanding of Israel and the surrounding nations. See, we're so prone to look at Scripture from our own particular worldview, aren't we? It is, though, to our detriment that we do that. So let me bring up the spiritual worldview of Israel and the pagans in Moses' day, for this is key to understanding why the Lord promised an abundance of material blessings to his people. The nations surrounding Israel, and even Israel herself, had a very strong belief in spiritual entities called gods. Plural. Gods, in other words, they believed the gods were real. Okay, so before you call me a heretic, hear me out. Now this sounds so odd to our ears, doesn't it? See, we all know that there's only one God. Western civilization takes it for granted. Well, let me point out two truths in Scripture that emphasizes the fact that gods are real. First, the pagans worship those gods. Then the scripture itself acknowledges the existence of them. See, again, these were not figments of the imaginations of the pagans, as if they were some kind of comic book superheroes, as I've heard it put. Now, let me be very quick to say that although scripture says there are other gods, and the word is Elohim here, This does not mean in any way, shape, or form that any other God is on the same level as Yahweh. All right? Yahweh is number one. He's way up here. In fact, Yahweh created the Elohim, the other gods. And the psalmist in Psalm 97, verse 7, says forcefully to them, worship Yahweh, all you gods. They're not figments of imagination. Now, there are many places in Scripture that talks about other gods. And the pagans worshipped some of them. Second thing we often overlook is that Yahweh himself talked about the gods as they were real. Because if that's not true, if the gods were not real in Yahweh's estimation, why does the first commandment he gave his people contain these words? You shall have what? No other what? Gods before me. They're not figments. They're real. And even in today's passage, verse 14, Moses says, don't go after other gods to serve them. Now, given the fact that the people of Moses' day firmly believed the gods were real, we need to ask a question. How did the gods treat their worshipers if they're real? Now, believe it or not, there are writings that have been found to give us some clues to this. The people were desperate to know how to worship the gods, and the gods didn't really seem to give them the time of day. The gods did not communicate to the pagan worshiper. And they could have. Again, these are real entities, but they didn't tell the people how to worship, how to appease them. The people groped about in spiritual darkness, trying to make connection to them, but there was no results in their desperation. Sometimes people came up with some ideas to appease them like child sacrifice, among other things. The pagans sought material blessings from the gods, but it was in vain. Came across a prayer written way back in the day by a worshiper of a god who he did not know, but wanted to make connection with. So let me read part of it. It's kind of lengthy, but let me read part of it to show you the helplessness and hopelessness of the situation of a typical pagan worshiper back in the day. Now, this prayer may sound familiar to some of us because we actually read it before, been with us for a while. Let me just read. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. The transgression I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing I have eaten, I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God, in the rage of his heart, confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I'm constantly looking for help, no one takes my hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. We're talking about the gods. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address you the prayer ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of the goddess. I crawl before you. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. Oh my Lord, do not cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp, take him by the hand. The sin I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression that I have committed, let the wind carry away. O oh God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O oh God, as whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing your praise. May my heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted toward me. Like a real mother and a real father, may it be quieted toward me. Now you tell me, you ever heard a more desperate, more heart-wrenching prayer than that one? What kind of relationship does this pagan have with the god or the goddess that he really wants to worship? No one of the worshipers tried anything and everything they could think of to appease them. What were the worshipers looking for? Material blessings, good crops, prosperity in their flocks and their herds, many children, good health, military success, sort of like what Yahweh was promising his people. But the gods were aloof. They just did not care. But what could the worshiper do? Certainly, the priests of the gods directed the worship, but when people are reduced to pouring out their hearts, like we just heard in that prayer, what good is the worship? A contrast, what we just heard with what Yahweh says about this whole thing, what Moses taught Israel regarding his ways in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as The Lord, my God, commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to possess it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Did you catch the contrast? The superiority of Yahweh and his ways to that of the gods that the pagans worshipped? See, the pagans had no clue as to what their gods wanted. Yahweh tells his people exactly what he wants of them. The commandments and statutes of the Lord, rather than being something oppressive and restricted to them, like we so often think, to them was a blessed relief. Finally, a God who actually tells his people what he wants and how he wants them to worship him. At last, a God who hears his people and graciously acts accordingly. Again, what did the pagans seek from their deities? that their needs might be met. But what was their reality? The gods did not meet their needs. But what was Yahweh's promise Israel? I'm going to bless you with super abundance. And Israel, when you obey my ways, you will show the nations how superior my ways are to theirs. So what do we make of the contrast between the gods and Yahweh? Simply put, Yahweh desired to show the nations through his people how much he cares for them and that he can care for the nations as well. His strategy seems to be that the pagans will be influenced to worship Yahweh and not the pagan gods. In other words, Yahweh is vying for the attention and the affection of the nations through his people. And so now fast forward many centuries at the perfect time in history. Messiah was born. So Christ came to his own people and served them even though they did not receive him. The Lord Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, gave up his glory, became impoverished, and lived his life in full dependence on the Father. The Lord Jesus did not experience abundant material blessings Yahweh offered Israel when they settled in the land of promise many centuries earlier. Again, at the right time, Christ waged war. And the battlefield was the cross. The father placed on his son all of our sin. And at the right time, Jesus cried out, it's finished. Our sin debt was paid. Hallelujah. We no longer have to bear our sin. Christ paid for it all and paid for it in full. Remember what John the Baptist said to Jesus, said about Jesus as he pointed them. He says, look, there goes the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember 1 John two two, He, Jesus, is the propitiation, God's sacrifice, God's satisfaction for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. The death of Christ was the absolute, complete payment for all sin, for all people, forever. And if this was all that Christ accomplished on the battlefield, it would be far more than we could ever ask. True. But there's far more to the story. The writer to the Hebrews gives us another part of it. Jesus won the victory, not merely over sin, but something far greater. Hebrews two fourteen 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has a power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's the greatest weapon that the enemy has in our world today? It's not death. What is it? It's the fear of death. Jesus has taken away the fear of death among his people. Amen? Christ Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. The Lord Jesus demonstrated his power over death by his resurrection from the dead. And Christ's death was a one-time event. Jesus will never die again. Death cannot hold him. Jesus walked out of that grave victorious. And there's more. And this is where I believe we can offer an answer to the question. Why did Yahweh seemingly stop emphasizing material blessings in the New Testament when it was so prevalent in the Old Testament? I'm convinced the answer is found in the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ when he went to the right hand of the Father. In Paul's prayer for his friends in the church in Ephesus, he loudly proclaimed Christ's victory over the spiritual entities, over the gods that held the pagans in bondage and desperation. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These are the gods. These are the named gods, basically. And above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So where is Christ right now in relation to the pagan gods that held so many people captive for so long? Far above them. High above them. The ascended Christ is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And it's just a matter of time till all gods that Paul just mentioned will be subdued under his feet. And so what does this mean to the material blessings? The short answer is that gods are defeated, and that makes material blessings incidental. Even in the days of his ministry, did not the Lord Jesus tell us that we're not to become overly concerned and worried about what the pagans, the Gentiles, vainly but eagerly sought? For they were convinced that the gods could help them. And what this means is that we can trust the Father to meet our needs. We don't have to work to appease him. (laughs) Amen? See, he will take care of us. And through the gospel, everybody, has the glorious opportunity to trust the Father as well. What the Lord wants is our loyal, childlike trust in Him, regardless of the amount of possessions that we have or don't have. Since He will take care of us, we no longer seek the things that the Gentiles eagerly seek. What we seek is the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And as we do, the Father will meet our needs. He knows what we need even before we ask Him. So why do we ask him? Because he wants the fellowship. So the bottom line is that we no longer need to seek the material blessings of the Lord that the Lord poured out upon his people in Moses' day and in Joshua's day. God will meet our needs. Material things are now incidental. Whether we have a lot of them or little of them makes no difference. We can serve the Lord just as effectively whether we have a lot of material goods and money, and resources, or a little. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? And if you don't, you need to check. Who is God? Is he not the one who owns everything? The key, though, is contentment, isn't it? Regardless of how much we have or we don't have. See, Paul learned this lesson. And let me emphasize the word learned. He told his friends in Philippi, while under house in re- uh, house arrest in Rome, these things in Philippians 4, 11, and 13. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We're talking economic things here now. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secrets of what? Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says something we all know. I can do all things to whom it strengthens me. And what is that? To be content in whatever situation he is in and what situation we're in. And I can resonate with Paul and his learning process, can't you? Indeed, whether we have many possessions or a few, we need to live contentedly in the Lord's blessings because it all comes from him. And now for those of us who do have an abundance of material blessings, the Lord encourages us through Paul to use them as a means to bless others to meet their needs. See, we get to give our stuff away, don't we? Don't we? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. For this is how the Lord provides for the material needs of those in the family. Followers of Jesus who have material possessions coupled with contented hearts is of great blessing to others in their time of need. See, Paul tells Timothy, his mentee, in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, and 17-19, through these truths about wealth. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world, right? There's no U-Hauls behind a hearse. But if we have food and clothing, and with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, Timothy, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we as followers of the Lord Jesus, those of us who have more than enough, we have the privilege of using the material things he's given us to bless others. See, part of what marks a Christian is that he or she displays open-handed generosity like I've seen over and over again here over the years. Can I get witness on that? We've been able to share with one another the, the, the things of our possessions to those in need in our body. Now, we understand how much the Lord has given us. How can we not share with others? And though many of us have much, by the way, of material goods, and we think about ourselves in comparison to the rest of the world, it's true, we have so much. All of these things pale into insignificance when compared to the spiritual blessings the Lord has so abundantly granted to us. Isn't that true? I can think of no better way to finish this message than to simply read together one spiritual blessing after another after another that Paul has written out for us in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I gave you an insert in your bulletin, so I'd like you to pull that out. And let's read these together and read them kind of like antiphonally. I'll read one, then you read another. And for those who were here last week, you recited the Lord's words like you meant it, with passion, with volume. So let's do that today. Let's let's do it for the people in the back, so to speak. So again, let's let's do the same thing again. I'll read one blessing, and you read the next one. So let's begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places.
1: Even as he chose in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before
0: him. and believed in him you were sealed with the promise holy spirit
1: Who is the of our inheritance and we acquired possession of it to the praise of his glory
0: are not the blessings of God truly magnificent but uh have a, have a minute or two for and uh, q a as we sometimes do so uh anybody have any comments or questions about what we heard today
1: what does the Lord will make you the head and not the tail mean?
0: We're talking of uh, the uh, the major influence in in all the world, among the nations. Make you the head, make you influential. Like a leader? Like a leader, yes. Economic leader, yes. And again, we hear this by with so many prosperity gospel preachers. They say, hey, God wants us to be the lead. We just got to grab hold of his blessings and all that kind of thing. But one thing I don't hear about the prosperity gospel preachers or from them is, our need for obedience, our need for loyalty to the Lord and letting the Lord do with us what he will. Is anybody else? Prosperity is always money, yes. Yep, and that's why we spend time today. And again, it, it looks like Old Testament, God wants to be prosperous materially. But again, why was that? It was a witness that God himself did for the pagans so that the pagans could come to him. And that's the way they can understand it. Because the pagan gods were not giving the people what they needed. Anybody else? All right, going once, twice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are a good and generous and gracious God. Lord, you take care of everything that is yours, which is everything. Lord, the entire world, the earth is yours and the fullness thereof, including every man, woman, boy, and girl. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you hung on a cross, died for us. All our sins are paid for. And now, Lord, for those of us who are reconciled to you, we're living, as it were, in the blessings of the millennium, as it were, right now. Just a taste, though. But, Lord, those who are not still in your kingdom, but, Lord, they're living in rebellion against your authority. So, Lord, I pray for these individuals, Lord, that you would get a hold of them and by your spirit, Lord, convict them of their sin. May they turn to you and get reconciled to you. We thank you, Father, for these things. Thank you that you have it all under control. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that one day you're going to make it all right, exactly the way that you want it. Between then and now, Lord, we're asking that you'd help us who know you as Lord and Savior to proclaim the gospel because the gospel is what you you have given us to show the world that we can have we can be saved. We really can be saved now and forever. Thank you, Lord, for this. Now I pray, Father, as we as we turn our attention to our giving, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in this way. I pray also, Lord, as we sing once again, that we will sing with our heart, soul, mind, and strength because, Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. And we thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name,
1: amen.